do this, we incorporate three elements of data. We use human source information or information from people on the ground, actually in country, as well as people who have been forced to flee. Open source information, which includes social media and news reports, and high resolution satellite imagery. In doing so, we combine all these data sets and we publish our data, make it publicly available on our website, which you can see there, asorsyrianheritage.org. Some of the, my talk is going to focus on the last two years of heritage destruction and looting, what we've been able to identify, which uh, includes the location of these heritage incidents, the causes of them, and the types of sites that have been affected by the conflict. Uh, a summary of the situation in ISIL or Daesh controlled Iraq, and some of the challenges we face in order to report on the situation in Iraq. Our project began in August 2014, and so I'll begin our assessment with that date. In our first year of reporting, we've documented over 700 sites that have been damaged. So the minimum number of incidents during this one year time period between August 2014 and September 2015, well over 700. This map shows the minimum number of incidents that we have been able to record through our three types of data. Since the beginning of the project, um, we have noticed that the damage is quite widespread. Uh, although it's clustered around sites that have been exposed to looting and within proximity to active conflict zones. So I can see that it's a bit difficult for folks in the room to see the map, but this is a map indicating the types of sites that have been damaged according to time period, as well as the type of damage that has occurred to them. And this is only what has taken place uh, within a single year. This graph shows the types of incidents or the cause of damage throughout this first year of reporting. As you can see, the majority of the damage that took place in year one is the result of intentional destructions. This is in large in part because uh, our data set combines both Iraq and Syria. Majority of these intentional episodes of destruction did take place in Iraq. As you can see, the second most uh, damaging type of activity is explosives, whether they be aerial bombardment or heavy weaponry. And finally, the third most damaging type of activity is illegal di digging or excavation, looting. Uh, the types of sites that have been affected by the conflict largely are archaeological sites and monuments as well as religious sites and monuments. Uh, however, that is not to say that museums um, do not, uh, although they are few in number, they represent high impact sites. Museums contain a multitude of cultural objects. And so when a museum is hit, you lose not only the museum itself, the structure, which often could be a historical place, um, you also lose the cultural collection contained within it, as well as any library archives that may be there, laboratory facilities. Um, and so you're not only losing this cultural material, but you're also reducing the actual capacity of the institutions there to function post-conflict. Recent trends in the past year, uh, beginning from September 2015 up until now, uh, have indicated that well over 800 sites have now been affected in the last 12 months. That's a 3.4% increase in the number of incidents that have taken place compared to the previous year. And so this damage, again, is concentrated in areas of Syrian opposition control in northwestern Syria, as well as Tadmor area, or the area of ancient Palmyra 
Deir Azor, Mosul, and Fallujah. And so you can see here in this map um, the clusters of activities. Again, uh, many of these sites are in densely populated areas like Aleppo, Damascus, Mosul, Fallujah. And so the damage there is exceptional. The leading cause of damage in the last 12 months in both Syria and Iraq has been the result of military explosives, largely as a result of aerial bombardment, um, with a minimum number of incidents up to 361 in the affected cultural areas. Many sites, especially in dense urban areas, have been hit repeatedly. And in Syria, the difficulty in trying to document this is understanding that they the conflict in Syria and Iraq, are deal we're dealing with two different types of modalities. Um, in Syria, all major belligerents have the capacity to carry out uh, military t uh, attacks. Uh, however, there are many, state act many actors involved in the conflict, and often these actors are often denying responsibilities, a great deal of misinformation. In Iraq, however, it's a bit different to document. We have fewer actors directly involved in the conflict, and often uh, culpability is acknowledged by these actors when incidents occur, um, whether this be as a result of major military offensives, such as the US-led coalition, or it could be Daesh. Um, as I said before, there's been a significant escalation in the amount of damage that has taken place uh, within this past 12 months. And so the, this graph indicates here uh, in the blue the number of religious sites compared to orange, which represents the total number of sites damaged within that quarterly period. And as you can see, the number of religious sites in compared to the wider total sites has risen dramatically. And again, this is a result of largely the uh, aerial bombardment. Uh, of densely high population, high population areas in both Syria and Iraq. The second leading cause of damage during this last 12-month period has been, again, intentional destruction. We have documented at least 98 incidents of intentional destruction in both Syria and Iraq. Uh, the majority of these incidents have been attributed to Daesh, uh, with a high degree of confidence. Um, and so this is the result of the fact that uh, Daesh tends to, again, take, uh, take uh, responsibility for the actions of these uh, destructions. And so we've noticed that at least 50% of the damage has been publicly acknowledged by Daesh through social media and their other uh, information networks. And so we noticed, too, that uh, other types of intentional destructions um, are probably the result of autochthonous, rather uh, homegrown ethno-sectarian tensions and retributory violence, uh, as is the case of what took place uh, during in Fallujah, as well as Muqtadiyya and the Diyala region. And ISIL, uh, Daesh attacks on religious heritage is often intended to foment and spread this type of violence. So we've seen in the past year, uh, especially a, a significant rise in suicide bombings at places of worship. Um, which are intended to pit different populations against one another. And so the situation in Iraq specifically has, uh, is unique compared to what is taking place in Syria. As I said before, the majority of uh, types of damage that have taken place are the result of deliberate destruction. And so this is only accounting for what has taken place in Iraq. There's have, we've noticed at least 300 episodes of intentional destruction 
uh, of cultural heritage sites. And this is, dates from not only pre-Islamic periods, but also Islamic periods, including modern places of worship. And so as you can see here, um, based on this graph, the majority of sites that have been damaged are in fact Muslim. And predominantly though, they are Shia and Sufi sites. And so we believe that this is, again, attempting to not only foment and increase sectarian tension within these conflict zones, but it also has another, another tactic. Uh, it's attempting to undermine the local population and re erode resistance to Daesh. And unfortunately, what we noticed, the way that the narrative is discussed in the um, open media, specifically uh, Western media, is that many of these types of damage, uh, specifically attacks on Muslim sites, are under un, um, downplayed and they're not discussed in uh, international press. The majority of the focus tends to be on the destruction of ancient sites, which comparatively, as you can see, while very, very um, uh, distressing, only encompasses a very small fraction of what's actually taking place on the ground. And so I'll t discuss some of the problems that we have with this, uh, why this is problematic uh, in a future slide. And so in order to better understand um, how this damage is being done, we need to see why it's happening. And so specifically, we're, doing an, we're attempting to analyze the, the motivation behind these attacks by Daesh. And so we know that Daesh is, in, is, is attacking these places for multiple reasons. And so the one main reason is, again, is to um, participate in cultural cleansing. We're, they are attempting religious purification, uh, purging of idolatry and heresy. And they're attempting to permanently drive out uh, different ethnic and religious minorities in order to create a more homogenized society of their own creation. And in doing so, they're manipulating cultural identity. So even those that are able to remain inside this society, they're being forced to, they're stripped of any sort of identifying um, uh, specific, I guess, identities is a better way to put it. And in doing so, they're also erasing cultural memory. So not only stripping modern uh, identities, but also removing any memory of what the society used to have been before their uh, existence of Daesh. And in the end, this ultimately, this is genocide. This is cultural cleansing. The erasure of these sites includes the erasure of peoples, the massacre of living communities. And so in doing so, they're able to not only further their own ideological and political objectives, they're doing so to hide their other activities. And this includes being able to profit from activities that may be in contrast to their own ideology. Uh, this includes specifically the sale and procurement of cultural property to finance their own terrorist activities. And so again, these attacks on heritage, they're concerning. And while other belligerents are accused of intentionally targeting places of worship and um, historic places to retaliate against the, the enemy, um, groups like Daesh uh, publicize and promote their activities in order to not only uh, gain more recruits to the cause, um, but also to raise their own profile within internal um, jihadi movements. Uh, there's a great deal of competition between Daesh, Al-Qaeda, other Islamist movements, and they're doing these acts and putting, making them public in order to, in this game of one-upsmanship, in order to demonstrate their, their capability of not only 
undertaking these activities, but also to demonstrate their sophistication technologically and, and uh, ideologically as well. And so again, um, in cases of asymmetric conflict, when we have militarily weaker belligerents, non-state actors um, fighting against state actors, actual armed, organized uh, militaries, these, these uh, militarily weaker belligerents like insurgents or um, these groups like Daesh will often uh, break common laws of war and international humanitarian law because it's a benefit to them, it's an advantage to them, knowing full well that traditional militaries are less likely willing to do so. And so this includes targeting non-combatants, uh, incorporating no-go zones into oper military operation, which includes occupying places of worship, uh, using ambulances to smuggle weapons and other sorts of illicit commodities, um, and using human shields. And so these acts means that um, that through this, uh, these non-state actors are able to better engage and, and fight against uh, state actors. And so I think a good example of this is the, um, the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhists. And so the edict to destroy the Bamiyan Buddhists in Afghanistan in 2001 was both a religious and a political message. Uh, while the Taliban maintains that it was adhering to strict Islamic law against idolatry, um, it also is, was an act of defiance against the United Nations, which had just recently implemented wide-ranging sanctions that had crippled uh, Afghanistan at the time before harboring terrorists. And so the Taliban was unable to further its own political agenda to lift these sanctions through normal diplomatic channels. And so it had done this in order to gain attention and also to draw attention to the hypocrisy of the situation by announcing in advance that they were going to destroy the Bamiyan Buddhas and causing international outrage against this act and having um, cultural institutions like museums and um, cultural heritage experts to, to cry out and say, we will pay you money to save this. In response, they still decided to destroy it to highlight the fact that, yes, you said you would buy these stones. However, you are allowing these sanctions to continue, which are starving our children and causing our, our local population to die. It was, they were able to undermine the West's message in, to do so by destroying these Buddhas in their face. And so undoubtedly, uh, Daesh is taking out um, a, a page out of the book of, of Al-Qaeda and doing the same thing again uh, with this. So we need to be very careful in the way in which we not only discuss the destruction of these monuments, but also publicize them and our, uh, direct the way in which we direct our outcry. And so I think a, a way that we can discuss this is look at specifically uh, what had taken place in Mosul after Daesh had taken over in June 2014. And so um, what we have noticed in our analysis is that there seems to be two general waves of attack in this first year. The first wave was an attacks on um, modern cultural heritage. And by modern, I mean largely Islamic up until the modern period. This includes not only political statues and um, including statues of famous poets, but also uh, Islamic statues, of Islamic places of worship, and mostly Shia and Sufi shrines. And these were all publicly done probably within the first month or two of Daesh's uh, infiltration of the city. And so this largely was mostly to not only announce their presence to the local city, but also to undermine any sort of resistance level. These were done in, um, in tandem with um, 
the mass execution of anyone who was rebelling, uh, as well as the taxation of non-Muslim populations, and the targeted recruitment of sympathizers within the city. So all of these cannot be understood in isolation. We need to see the larger picture. We have destruction of cultural heritage acting in tandem with exceptional violence against local people. And so, um, again, more, probably the most damaging and, uh, you know, hurtful acts of this was the destruction of Nebi Yunus or the prophet Jonah. And so this, again, like many of these other instances, it was publicly filmed, planned out, and the entire process was uh, videotaped and made exceptionally public on social media. And then afterwards, um, Daesh militants allowed local people to actually come and visit the rubble and pick from it with building materials that they may have needed. Um, months later, we had received satellite imagery that showed that the entire site had been bulldozed and leveled. The memory of Mebi uh, Yunus as a monument has been completely erased. The second wave of destruction we noticed take place was affecting now attacks on pre-Islamic cultural heritage. And so this is now they're taking a page out of Al-Qaeda and ta the Taliban's book from Bamiyan. And so they, this, this attack was meant to not only uh, practice the ideology that they had uh, regarding pre-Islamic populations and non-Muslim populations to, to highlight idolatry and the non-believers to punish them, uh, but also to um, attack the West in a way, to demonstrate the uh, idolatry that the West has um, participated in by not only investigating the pre-Islamic past, but also highlighting it and, and bringing more attention to it than, than modern Islam. And so again, this was a way, and we think now that this type, of pop, this type of propaganda that's being put out is now more outward facing. They're attempting to goad um, American and European militaries into acting, to responding in some way. And so this, there was a quick succession of multiple instances that happened rapidly. We had, we had the Mosul Museum and um, the Nurgal Gate in Nineveh. Then we had the attacks on Hatra, which were largely superficial vandalism. Um, but ultimately, this culminated in probably the most um, egregious video that took place, which was the complete and total destruction of the Northwest Palace at Nimrud. And so, this demonstrates, um, I think, a, a new term that's coming out that, come, that comes into play when discussing these uh, Salafist, jihadi Salafist movements. Specifically, Daesh is a, a wave, that, a tactic they've employed that's called hyperviolence, um, which means um, taking the form, which is taking the form in public executions, uh, maimings, uh, which are documented and publicly displayed at a very high rate, and they're being spliced with uh, the good things that they're doing. So it's almost um, like Clockwork Orange, where you have you know, people are being forced to watch these horrific things in order to desensitize them, but also to make them very afraid. And so Nimrod is a good example of hyperviolence being committed against cultural heritage sites. And so this was an incredibly egregious film. You can see that they they remove they they smashed the reliefs both within the palace, then they took them out physically, and then smashed them again. 
They showed the ex complete and detailed um, construction of these barrel bombs, the placement of them, where they put them, interspliced with actual accusations against the West and anti-American and anti-European sentiments. And then finally, they showed the full destruction of it using multiple camera angles to capture every piece of, of damage and complete obliteration of this site. And so this destruction is egregious with a purpose. Attacking ancient heritage not only undermines the cultural diversity of this area and erases the shared memory of the Iraqi people, but it also is per trying to pit local Muslim populations against the West by goading Western scholars, Western populations into decrying the destruction of non-Islamic heritage in the complete and total absence of any reaction to the same treatment of uh, Muslim sites in Mosul. And so I think this is especially um, concerning now by the way in which we are treating especially the, the discussion of, of refugee populations from both Syria and Iraq. Many people are crying out against the destruction of Palmyra while we're having a massive refugee crisis. And, and people you see this in, in um, Middle Eastern press, why are people we're crying over these stones and these monuments when you have children and people dying on a daily basis, just trying to escape this horrific war. And so, again, I think it serves as a warning in the way in which we discuss this situation and how we publicize this type of damage. We can't play into this. So now we turn towards Mosul. Um, and so I want to provide a summary of what has taken place, uh, what we've been able to document, specifically using uh, Nineveh as a case study, because I think it not only um, highlights the multiple levels of damage, both um, the result of modern religious places of worship, but also ancient sites, because, it, again, Nineveh almost serves as a, as a case study for what encompasses not only northern Iraq, but all of the Middle East. You have overlapping traditions, overlapping histories, and a very concentrated and dense place. And so um, I want to highlight specifically how satellite imagery, local knowledge, and open source media have been able to help us get an understanding of what's happening in a place like Mosul, where we have had nearly a complete and total blackout of information for the past two years. And so um, this map here indicates, I know, again, you can't see that pretty very well, but uh, the damage that has taken place at the uh, northern site of Nineveh since uh, the invasion of Daesh. And so uh, most recently, we have had massive destruction of multiple gates uh, that are in the area that, out, that outline the ancient site. And so these uh, three gates, the Adda Gate, uh, Mashki Gate, and Nergal Gate, they are uh, largely the, the structure that you could see at the top is uh, reconstituted re uh, material. So it's a new structure incorporating ancient materials um, built on top of uh, archaeological foundations with uh, ancient um, ancient materials contained within. And so I think that when the first uh, damage of, evidence of this damage had taken place, many people said, well, what does it matter? Are there reconstructions? Um, not in total, that's actually inaccurate, but it also, more importantly, made local people also incredibly upset and made people in Iraq very upset. And that's actually what matters, not whether or not this is authentic ancient heritage or not. It doesn't matter. It's a part of the cultural fabric, no matter how old it is. And so we learned of this incident via not necessarily open source media, but from actual contacts on the ground who risked their life to send us 
photographs of the action taking place in real time. And so you can see at the top um, on the left-hand side of the screen is what the gate had looked like prior to the invasion of Daesh to Mosul. The middle picture you can see dated to April 14th is what we received uh, via, I think it was WhatsApp. It was sent to us via that. Um, and you can see it's difficult again, but that's actually a bulldozer in action tearing down the ancient walls. And so we quickly were able to request uh, satellite imagery in order to determine whether or not this was actually taking place. And in fact, our fears were confirmed. Much of these gates were, in, were leveled. Months later, um, Daesh decided to release its own propaganda about the incident with very high resolution uh, almost artistic photos of, the, of the, the damage. And so they were planning on releasing this. So I think uh, it's a bit interesting that we can see it took at least a few months for Daesh to get its act together and to actually produce the propaganda. So um, we need to think about not only how they're conducting these destructions, but what are they publicizing, why, and when? And so I can't answer all of these questions, but I would like to put that in the back of your mind as we look at these incidents and talk about them. Um, again, the Mashki Gate, this is imagery that we received, what it looked like before, uh, what our sources sent to us. So apparently they got very, very close and actually were able to show great detail. And then you can see in the satellite imagery the total erasure of not only the gate, but also the, the surrounding wall. The Nurgal Gate uh, had suffered probably the most and has been attacked repeatedly. So again, in the Mosul Museum video, there were multiple images showing um, members of Daesh removing the face of these Lamassu figurines. However, unfortunately, we have seen its destruction happen um, quite significantly. So this is what the Nurgal Gate had looked like in um, uh, April 14th. So this is, again, what our local contacts in Mosul had sent us, showing the status of what the Nurgal Gate looked like. We were relieved that it wasn't damaged. However, quickly we realized that, no, in fact, this was just the beginning. Um, it was not safe for long. And so this is the Daesh propaganda that was later put out showing a bulldozer ripping through the Nergal Gate and actually um, removing that Lamassu and dumping it into a dump truck. Our satellite imagery again confirms that this removal of the Nergal Gate began not um, in June, but actually late May, so a couple of weeks after. And so you can see the two black arrows on the screen in the middle picture show the slow removal of uh, the Nergal Gate. So it, this probably was, um, they were maybe taking a break. We couldn't, couldn't see the actual uh, earth mover in uh, the satellite imagery, but by uh, June 16th, only three weeks later, it was completely gone. And so again, we have removal of Southwest Polis, but we haven't received any sort of uh, propagandistic um, uh, documentation of this from Daesh yet. And so, like I said before, Daesh has covered these incidents. Um, they're further promoting its ideology, uh, especially news outlets like Dabek and its uh, social media practices. It's been largely removed from Twitter and Facebook, but it uses other avenues to propagate this visual hyper-violence uh, imagery. And so we need to not only look at what they're putting forth for public consumption, but what is it these, uh, this, this propaganda trying to also hide? What's going on behind the scenes that we're not publicly able to see? And so this, again, is, is the willingness to adjust, uh, adjust its ideology for the sake of capitalism. So it's specifically the sale of antiquities. And so we have put forth the Mosul Museum footage, which shows them ransacking the museum, destroying um, multiple objects. However, we know through um, Recent military activity, specifically the Abu Sayyaf raid uh, in May, 
that multiple museum pieces from Mosul were in fact in this uh, major Daesh uh, leader's house. These were objects that actually had Mosul Museum uh, inventory numbers on them. In addition, at this man's house, he was actually the person who was in charge of natural resources, so that included not only oil, but also antiquities, were multiple other artifacts, including coins, and we have documentation of the system that was in place at the time. It was highly systematized. And so fortunately, we also have learned information from our sources on the ground about how these networks have worked. And so you can see on the left, this is a map that was provided one of our in-country sources about how Daesh was smuggling antiquities out of the country. And we also have not only how they're doing it, but who's doing it. We get indications of the perpetrators that are involved. Uh, so these are two individuals who have been identified that deal in both uh, antiqu antiques uh, and specifically uh, cultural uh, objects resulting from um, religious uh, places of worship, both Christian and Yazidi, where's the majority of what was being smuggled out, but also uh, antiquities as well. And so the problem now with the discussion of antiquities uh, trafficking is that much of the information is unable to be released publicly by law enforcement officials because they are active, ongoing, um, police investigations. And so if any of this information that is still rather sensitive could put people's lives at risk. I'm able to share this with you because authorities have been able to act on these, uh, this case, these, these networks, and these individuals. So just because we aren't able to discuss it um, doesn't mean it's not happening. I think I'm running a little over time now at this point, so I'm going to try to wrap up and say that this is only the beginning. We're now shifting into conflict mode. Um, with the with with Daesh on its heels and Mosul invasion happening, they're using other tactics. They're losing ground, but they're still making themselves known through suicide attacks. And so we've had at least ten suicide attacks against mosques in Iraq in the last year. And so as a result, um, and this was specifically against uh, Shia populations, Shia populations have retaliated and attacked Sunni. Um, Sunni populations, and so this largely happened uh, most egregiously in Muqtadiyah last January. And so with Mosul, we know that it's going to be very difficult to document what's happened. Uh, there's, again, been a media blackout for two years. We don't really know what's happening actually on the ground. No visual confirmation of some of these reports we have. And so we think that it's going to play out just like Fallujah. Fallujah, again, was under siege for many years. And then the battle for Fallujah took place. And so then all of a sudden we had a deluge of data, multiple episodes and, and images of, of damaged cultural heritage places that we needed to sort through in order to identify uh, what had taken place and potentially who the perpetrators were. And so we needed to identify who was in place at the time that may have undertaken these acts and then actually accurately identify the perpetrator and that holds an incredible weight of responsibility because it's one thing to understand Daesh intentional destruction, fine. We'll know that intentional destruction probably took place during the occupation period. We need to sort that through airstrike damage perpetrated by coalition airstrikes in support of ground uh, forces, uh, popular mobilization units, Shia popular mobilization units who had come in to help liberate the city. But in addition to this, there were allegations of post-battle vandalism by these PMUs, which are incredibly sensitive. And so in order to be able to accurately uh, assess the situation, we need to be very careful about who we attributed the damage to. And so in the end, we know that 52 sites were damaged, specifically 26 during Daesh occupation, um, 19 during the combat period, and potentially eight as a result of uh, post-conflict vandalism. 
this is what we're going to need to do for Mosul again. We're going to have to be able to sort out who the perpetrators were with the, the new deluge of data that's coming through. Uh, we've got journalists embedded with uh, military units. We also have aid workers going. And with the proliferation of social media, it's very easy to get a lot of this image, uh, these images very, very quickly. And so these are some of the first images that we're getting from recently liberated uh, villages. The problem is, though, that, again, um, we need to sort through this information to determine who exactly is responsible for this damage. There's many types of damage. We've got aerial bombardment. We've got heavy weaponry. We've got tunneling now. And in fact, we've seen some of this tunneling taking place at Nineveh over time. Uh, tunnels as big as cars. And so this is, we were unsure what was happening. Is this a result of looting? Or is it now military in nature? And so this is what we're now trying to sort through uh, without actual people on the ground to investigate. So we're hoping that. Um, over time, we'll be able to figure out what types of damage there are um, and understand the impact that it's had. Unfortunately, combat damage is going to be detrimental and heavily awful because it's not only going to incidentally um, result in collabor collateral damage, accidental hits, um, but sometimes these need to be tactical. And I think Mosul University is probably one of the most devastating examples of the tactical use of cultural heritage destruction. Mosul University has been attacked multiple times because it had been occupied by Daesh for the purpose of making bombs. And so as a result, multiple university buildings have been damaged and lost. So not only have we lost this important educational institution, but the people who have been working there for years have lost any sort of capacity to be able to rebuild quickly. And so we need to support our local um, archaeologists, Iraqi scholars, to work with them to help not only rebuild their cultural heritage, but to rebuild their own capacity to protect it themselves. So I'll end with that. Um, and if anyone has any questions, we'll ask after the session. Thank you.